This past week, we have endured here in Texas what has been referred to as a historic polar event coming to our state. And I've heard that phrase several times, historic polar event. And, and as I've heard it on the news, as I've heard it uh, just in conversation, it's made me reflect a little bit about the fact that we are this year celebrating a, an important anniversary in history. That is, we are celebrating the 175th anniversary of this church's ministry here in San Antonio and South Texas and to the world. And so I think it's important for us to not only consider the events of this past week, but to look back at that history, that 175 year history, because history gives us a certain perspective. It helps us to remember that the things that we endure now have been endured in many ways in the past. And by looking at the strength of those who've helped us or who have endured these things in the past, we can gain strength for the present and the future. Now, I've realized that there are some unique things that have happened over this last week. This year, we had a huge polar snow event combined with a pandemic. My son, Bo, coined a phrase. He said, this is the first time in history people have ever had to deal with snowvid. Snowvid, that's a new word for me. But that's what we were dealing with. We were dealing with one crisis on top of another. It just seemed to compound some things. But this is a time when we need to go back into our history and get a little bit of perspective. And so I wanted to share with you a story about, about someone who was important in the history of this church. The first years of this church's life were rough for this small congregation and for its founding pastor, John McCullough. Three years into his ministry here, a cholera pandemic took his beloved wife and John, broken by grief over her death, resigned his mission post and moved to Galveston. According to our church historian, Dr. Don Everett, Protestantism had lain dormant for several years in San Antonio and the old adobe building was beginning to melt and to fall into disrepair. The congregation had little money. And during the next few years, the church was served by only occasional traveling preachers, but was really led by a very great capable group of elders. Among them was a man named Samuel Newton. And we should note that members of the Newton family are still members of this church. Think about Charles and Job Jackson. That family are the seventh generation of that church, of that family in this church but they are here today. But those elders took leadership during that interim period and the elders wrote to seek assistance from a local preacher for a nearby preacher to come and help them. And so they wrote to the Reverend Robert Bunting, who was pastor of the newly founded church in LaGrange, Texas. He, like Pastor Delphi, was a church planter. He was part of this burgeoning movement in Texas. And they, they wrote to him and they asked Reverend Bunting to visit the San Antonio church for two Sundays and to administer the Lord's Supper while he was here. Now, Bunting arrived in San Antonio on Friday evening, January 4th, 1856. And the plan was that he would preach for two Sundays and then return to LaGrange. Reports say that on those two Sundays, however, the crowds were great bigger than they had had in many years. And so on the following, on the Sunday, uh, excuse me, on the Monday morning following the second Sunday, the elders of the church called together hastily a congregational meeting 
and they invited, at that congregational meeting, they invited Reverend Bunting to come and to serve as supply pastor for one year. Now, what's interesting about that call is that Bunting did not respond immediately. He had a lot to think about. In fact, he was taken back by the offer. Bunting was only 27 years old at the time and had been ordained as an evangelist to Texas. He came to Texas in 1852 to organize a congregation in LaGrange on the Colorado River and had done so successfully. San Antonio was not part of his plan. He loved LaGrange and he loved his flock there. They had built a building and it seems that he would not have even considered leaving LaGrange if not for his health. Apparently life on the Colorado River while so coveted by so many today just did not agree with his constitution and he was having some health problems. And so he wrote in response to that invitation to come to San Antonio, he said, I, can, I consented to go to San Antonio, trembling in fear to come and undertake my master's work in this wicked and neglected city. That's two pastors who came to San Antonio who described San Antonio in that way. But San Antonio was growing quickly. And while Bunting was there, while it was here, the congregation grew. It attracted disciples from 17 states, from Maine to South Carolina, and boasted representatives from nine different uh, nations and nationalities, from Scots-Irish to German to Hungarian to Cherokee. It included both English and Spanish speakers, and under Bunting, First Presbyterian Church's membership included African members and elders. That's right, slaves and people of African descent were members and elders in this congregation. And it was Bunting that actually began a building campaign to replace the adobe structure in which they met, which had become affectionately known at that time as the Mud Temple. Now, Robert Bunting did not plan to stay in San Antonio. He was just trying to help out a little group of Christians and he was trying to help out this little group of Christians in trouble. Bunting was never offered the job permanently, but rather he served as temporary supply pastor for six years and became one of the most consequential pastors in the history of this church. And that happened because he understood that his plans were not God's plans for his life. He understood that God has a bigger vision, a bigger purpose, and sometimes that doesn't always agree with what we think is supposed to happen. He understood that God's ways are higher than our ways. Now I tell that story because I want you to answer this question for me in your own mind. How many of you had to change your plans this week? How many of you have had to change your plans over the last year? I mean, I consider, I consider Pastor Bunting, I consider church planters like Pastor Delphi. I think about our mission partners who work in a variety of different conditions. And I think about what we have experienced in just this last week, just this last year. And I think about the fact that those conditions, those plan changing conditions exist everywhere in other parts of the world all the time. Not, being, not having water readily available to drink. That happens to some people every day. Pandemics, that's a part of everyday life for Christians and people in Africa and other places in the world. 
And yet God's plans move on. But how often has God changed your plans this week and this past year? Well, our scripture lesson for this first Sunday in Lent is about God's plan for the redemption of his people and his creation. And it's a reminder that God's plans do not always look like our plans. If you would, turn to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. It'll be on your screen. It's also printed in your bulletin. This is about a meeting that Jesus had with his disciples in the little town of Caesarea Philippi. And it goes like this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you future and a hope, to give you a future and a hope. Do you believe that God has plans for you, for your life? How about for your neighbors, for the person next door with cancer, for the man who just lost his job? Do you believe that God has a plan for them? Do you believe that God has a plan for you? Even when things look really bad, and even if you believe that God has a plan for your life, you trust him enough to go through with it. Even if it sounds really rough, even if that plan sounds really painful. Jesus came with a purpose. And that purpose was to lead us into a new relationship with God. And the passage that we have read today, Jesus told the disciples that God had a plan for him to accomplish that purpose. And he was asking them that day to trust that plan, no matter how hard or how bad it looked. And over the next six weeks, as we prepare for Easter, we're going to use Mark's gospel to take a look at how Jesus revealed and explained and then carried out God's plan. 
and how he brought it all to completion during the week of Passover in the year 33 AD. The Bible tells us that at a certain point in the town of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus began to reveal God's plans to his disciples. The Bible says that he told the disciples plainly, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He made similar statements twice more in chapters 9 and 10, telling them that in Jerusalem, they will mock him. That is to say, they will mock the Son of Man and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, but after three days, he will rise. Now, each time Jesus talked about the plan of God, he named four essential elements to that plan. First, that Jesus, the Son of Man, must be rejected. Second, that he must suffer. Third, that the Son of Man, that Jesus, must die. And one thing is clear from this plan, this death is intentional. He means for it to happen. This is not an accidental consequence of pushing the wrong people too hard. He's not, froming, he's not running from it, and he's not trying to escape it. Rather, he is walking into it. And what we read from Jesus' own words is that this death would not be quick, there would be no mercy given, no quarter supplied, no swift relief of pain. And it's also clear that he would not die a hero's or a martyr's death to the people. He would suffer greatly and he would also be humiliated and shamed and mocked and hung naked like a criminal. All these things were part of this plan, but fourth, each time, Jesus tells us that there's a fourth part of this plan. And he says that this plan is not only about death, it's also about life. Each time he told them of his death, he also declared that fourth, he would rise from the dead. And not at some uncertain time in the future like us, but precisely in three days. His death is appointed and his resurrection is appointed and they will happen on schedule according to plan and he will win. Now I want you to try to imagine being in Peter's position. Having just had this bomb dropped on you. I mean, this is terrible news. Your teacher, your friend, the person for whom you have given up everything and in whom you have invested your reputation, your livelihood, your future has just told you God's plan for his life. And that plan is to be shunned by his own people, to be humiliated, to be tortured and to killed. I mean, just moments earlier, Jesus had asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, well, that's who the people say you are, but I say that you are the Christ. It didn't make any sense. I mean, he's the Christ, which means Messiah. 
The Messiah was God's chosen and anointed savior of Israel. He was supposed to create a movement that would evolve into a force that would rise in strength and glory until Israel once again stood as a power to be reckoned with, a force to be feared among the peoples of the earth, to make the heathens tremble and Rome despair. But that couldn't happen if Jesus was rejected, if he was humiliated and killed. How could this possibly be God's plan? So much pain, so much shame, so much wasted opportunity. So what did he do? Peter Peter took Jesus aside and he actually rebuked Jesus. I mean, there was Peter scolding the son of God. You know, in the South, we use the expression that someone needs to have a come to Jesus meeting. Have you ever heard that? Well, guess what? Peter, in this instance, has decided that Jesus needed to have a come to Peter meeting. And so he took Jesus aside. And while Peter was dressing Jesus down, Jesus turned to him and to the other disciples with demon-stopping power and said, get thee behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. With all of that demon-stopping authority, he saw right through Peter's protests and unmasked them for the fearful, God-defying objections that they were. He said, this is God's plan. Your ways are not his ways. Your goals are not his goals. Your limits are not his limits. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God. You are setting your mind on the things of man. But we're all like Peter, are we not? God's plans are not our plans. The way God does things is not the way that we would do things. Rarely does he do things as we would like. And so what do we do? We protest God's plans. Or we resist God's plans. Or we find ourselves asking, why? Why does it have to be that way? Peter protested God's plan because he didn't understand the purpose of the plan. Again, Peter believed that Jesus was the Messiah and as such that he had come to provide political and temporal salvation to Israel. Like everyone else, he was looking for someone who would make Israel strong and independent once again, who would get the economy under control, who would solve people's health problems, who would fight crime and punish injustice and provide the moral foundation for healthy culture, healthy marriages, for, and, and lead people into a future with prosperity. Jesus was supposed to be a savior who would provide practical solutions and wisdom to deal with life's everyday problems. You see, the Messiah was not supposed to change our lives, just to make our lives better. And how could that happen if Jesus was disgraced, rejected by people, and executed as a criminal. But Jesus said, Peter, you're thinking the things of men, not the things of God. Jesus didn't go to the cross to fix those kinds of problems, practical, 
economic, political problems. Jesus went to the cross to fix a spiritual problem. He went to the cross to lead us into a new relationship with God. And the reason Peter protested and the reason we protest God's plans is because we don't understand how serious that problem is. We are so bombarded with issues of money and relationships and health and politics and the environment. We are so distracted by the issues of the day and the problems of man and culture that we don't understand that the most serious problem in the universe and for each one of us in particular is sin. It's a broken relationship with God. And the purpose of the Passover plan was a spiritual purpose, an eternal purpose. It was to lead us back into that new and right relationship with God. Jesus was saying, I have come to lead people into a new relationship with God. People who are far away from God. I've come for the people who don't trust God. I've come for the people who resent God, who feel betrayed by God, the people who think that God has forgotten them or doesn't care, the people who never had any kind of feelings for God, or maybe they just feel apathy or contempt, the people who want nothing to do with religion or faith because religious people have burned them or let them down. I've come for the people who say, I don't need God. I can do it all on my own. I don't need anybody else. I don't, I don't have to play by his rules. I can do it all by myself. He came for the people whose attitude about God made them selfish and paranoid and fearful and hateful and racist and apathetic and hurtful toward people. In other words, he came not for the righteous, but for sinners, people like us. Okay, but why did he have to suffer so? Why death? Why humiliation? Why the cross? Why did this plan have to be so hard and painful? And I believe that Peter's concern for his friend and his teacher was authentic. It was sincere. But again, Peter was thinking the things of man and not the things of God. He didn't get the plan because in our limited human perspective and understanding, we just don't grasp how serious the situation is. And like Peter, we will never take seriously the grace of the cross until we take seriously the gravity of our sin. The cross was grotesque. And the cross was grotesque because our sin is grotesque. Sin is violent, selfish, and dehumanizing. We tend to rationalize it away by saying, you know what, hey, nobody's perfect. Sure, I've got my faults, but I'm not as bad as some people. At least I'm not as bad as that guy over there. But John says that we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. God cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He can't turn a blind eye to sin committed against his children or against himself. And we all know that all of us have hurt God's other children at some point. We've done it out of selfishness or we turned a blind eye to neglect. 
To say that sin isn't serious is to say that the people that we've hurt or people who get hurt, that they don't matter. And to say that sinning against God is no big deal is to say that God doesn't matter. When we spit on God's name or hoard his gifts or ignore his authority or abuse his patience or take his love for granted, when we ignore him, we mock his holiness. And all of us have been complicit in our acceptance of injustice and poverty and greed, pornography and corruption, the idolatry of money and celebrities. And all of us have indulged in aspects of our culture that mock the worship of the living God. And you know what? The Bible says, the Bible tells us that for that sin, we deserve death. And yet our father knows that if he gave us what we deserve, we would be destroyed. So what does a holy God do when the children that he loves so much do the things commit the sin that he hates when we not only abuse his name but hurt one another what does he do so Jesus said I'll take their place Mark 10 45 says that the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many Jesus was the only possible substitute. So rare, no, so unique was the value of this one sinless life that his life was worth more than all the souls of all the damnable sinners that have ever lived before or since. By the death of Jesus Christ, the justice of God and the mercy of God were satisfied. Because of the cross, no sin will ever go unpunished. And because of the cross, no sin will ever go unavenged. That means that he has paid for every sin that you and I have ever committed and for every sin that you and I have ever endured. God put it all on Christ so that he wouldn't have to take it out on us and God proved his love for us and that while we were sinners Christ died for us so when Jesus said to Peter get thee behind me Satan he was saying Satan doesn't want me dead because he wants you in hell don't side with Satan God wants you to live with him And I'm trying to save your life. Now, why did Jesus go over this plan three times? Why did he make it plain? I believe it's because he wanted to prepare the disciples for what was coming. And so that they would understand what was happening as these events unfolded. As we move through the next few weeks, as we consider our own lives in the light of the story of Jesus we're going to be asked, we're going to be challenged to consider if we really believe that God has a plan for us. And if so, what does that mean when things look really bad? Do we really trust that God is in control? 
Or is that simply a platitude? In those moments, as events unfold, we will have to determine whether we are going to choose the way of man or the plan of God. Are we ready for that challenge? Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, as we come to you this morning, we know that you are challenging us to understand that you are sovereign Lord over all. And just as you showed the disciples that your ways are higher than our ways, we ask you to help us to understand through patient endurance and perseverance the truth of your sovereignty, that even in times of snowstorm and pandemic, of politics and civil unrest, in personal crisis, you are still in control. Lord, confirm that in our lives and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.